well, where are we uh, in the book of Isaiah? Prior to last week's sermon, um, we were looking at how God's grace triumphs over his people's failures, right? And how the northern kingdom uh, called Israel, remember, the, the, it was one kingdom and then it split, okay? Uh, and then the southern kingdom called Judah, they have both in their own timing, but in similar ways, they've turned from God. And then we saw how God was right to judge them and punish them. Why? So that a faithful remnant would remain. And then last week, we looked at what it looks like to be on the remnant side of God's triumph. God has deep wells of salvation and grace from which we're to soak in and drink in each and every day of our lives. For why? Because we live in the Already not yet. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet here fully. So now Isaiah turns to a really long section that's important for us to understand. Our sermon covers eight chapters in Isaiah, chapters 13 through 20. So let's start reading now. I'm joking. I'm not going to read all that. Some of you are like, are you serious? Um, instead, we're going to look at the major themes from these, the major one theme from these chapters I'm only going to read the first 11 verses of, verse of chapter 13. Now, in these chapters, listen, God says, Don't worry, my beloved children. Though the world is full of all kinds of evil and injustice, don't worry. All evil will come before my justice courts. All wrong will be properly punished. And think it through. Please, think of all the injustice in this world, be it nation against nation or rebel group attacking rebel group or parents neglecting their children or bosses who are jerks. God wants us to know, hey, I've got it. Trust in me. And so as we begin, let me ask you, do you trust God to bring justice to all the hurt in this world? Our text right now is chapter 13 of Isaiah, page 576. Might be good to have your thumb there. Uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalted, exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a, from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all the hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, 
and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, in in many ways, this seems so right. This world is is full of evil, um, and we cry out for justice. And yet, in many ways, it feels wrong because we know that when we cry out for justice, your justice will will rightly come upon us because we're not the people we know we should be, let alone the people you want us to be. But we're thankful for what this text teaches us, that you and your grace will care for us. Uh, We pray now that you would open our eyes to these truths, that we may honor you in our thoughts and in our lives, we pray. Amen. What comes to mind when you hear the word injustice? Perhaps a recent hardship in your life. Your insurance company should have paid the doctor bills, but all you're disputing doesn't yield a concession. Maybe the judge who presided over your, your divorce believed all the lies of your ex. Maybe an employee embezzled funds, or your siblings do not do their fair share to care for your aging parents. And just think of all the backstabbing you've endured, and then multiply that against the 10 billion-plus people who've walked on this earth. Or perhaps the word injustice brings to your mind all the brutality of evil dictators, how they rigged the elections or or took power by a bloody coup, how the leaders rule over others by fear and steal for themselves the nation's resources. Think about it, though, also. Injustice is so ever-present that we feel it's just a normal part of life. Sometimes we rejoice when a fair sentence is meted out. Other times we lament when an evil, again, prospers over good and goes unpunished. Sometimes we just take matters into our own hands. We scream and shout, get some glasses, ump. Or worse, when someone feels violated, they shoot up a school or a workplace. Ten people lie dead and the killer gloats in his jail cell. Where's the justice in that? And what do we do about people like Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao? Hitler abused and killed millions of Jews and started a world war in which millions of sons and daughters died while fighting against the evil of the Third Reich. The world experienced such huge injustice at the hands of Hitler, and he just kills himself, and gets away with it. And think about this. Think about this. Our our human justice system isn't even capable of punishing evil at the level of that magnitude, right? (laughs) What would earthly justice look like for Hitler? 20 million years in jail? Still wouldn't be enough, right? 
And so when we soberly reflect upon all this, we begin to wonder, is there somewhere a justice worthy of our delight? Or is to wonder just an exercise in foolishness? My friends, Isaiah has a thoroughly satisfying answer for our longing for justice. In verse 6 of chapter 13, we see his answer. What is it? It's, it's the day of the Lord. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from Almighty. It will come. God has a day when he will step in and punish all wrong with an absolute finality. The Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. And the New Testament calls it the day of the, our Lord, Jesus Christ. In our text in verse 11, we read, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. What a promise. Perhaps you're thinking that's all in fine, fine and dandy, but what does it have to do with me today? The answer is everything. Ray Ortland Jr. says, He, Jesus, is the reason we can now live with redemptive tolerance towards all. In other words, we need not extract that pound of flesh. Why? Because God will bring perfect justice. It's in his hands on that day. So instead, we can love our enemies and turn the other cheek. So in these eight chapters, God tells his people that all the evil nations that have hurt and hindered them, God will bring utter and final justice to bear upon them. The ancient nations of Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, they're all covered in these chapters. And though their evil spreads and infests like a plague, God will bring them the justice that they deserve. In these eight chapters that we're barely going to skim, God demonstrates to us that he is absolutely sovereign and supreme over everything. And having certainty in God like, in a God like this changes how we now live. We can live above the madness with great care for others in their distress. The big idea here this morning is this. God has perfect justice for our unjust world. Therefore, whatever happens, we must live with confidence in God now. Isaiah gives us three primary truths in these eight passages, eight chapters. They will be our main points. They are this. God opposes the proud. Our God reigns over all. And therefore, let us look to him. First, God opposes the proud. Think about it. In many ways, Pride is the sin above all sins, is it not? See, it is pride that separates us from God, and it's pride that separates us from others. And pride has so thoroughly infested all the nations that Isaiah addresses in our eight chapters. A representative verse is chapter 16, verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. Moab foolishly 
boasts of its greatness, but in the end, they look stupid. They ain't right. We know this from the five verses that preceded. It's amazing. The Moabites, who in the past, if you know, the Moabites as a nation have trampled upon God's people. And now they find themselves being trampled upon by other nations, and now they seek refuge from God's people. What would you have done? Get the heck out of here, jerk. Where were you when I needed you? Now, the better question is, what would God do? And here's what God says in verse 4. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Amazing. There's something about God's grace when it comes upon you. It allows you to be a blessing to the very people that have harmed you. God says, let them in. God welcomes Moab into the land, but Moab has a problem. What's the problem? Well, if Moab finds refuge with God's people, then they all must also then bow a knee to God's throne of justice and righteousness. So in pride, Moab refuses help on those terms. Foolishly, they would rather take their chances than submit to the throne of the Messiah. My friends, pride keeps us from experiencing the welcome, the mercy, and the grace of God. So let me ask you, is your stupid, foolish pride that says, I don't need to seek refuge with God, is your foolish pride keeping you from doing the one thing that can actually bring you eternal delight? Some of you have watched loved ones on their deathbeds cling to their pride instead of being saved. David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young died last week. The day before he died, he was on Twitter responding to someone's mockery of heaven. Crosby defiantly agreed. He tweeted, I heard the place is overrated, cloudy. God sees pride in us all, and he saw it in the king of Assyria in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself like the most high. You know, there's something about pride. We say it in our heart. We don't let other people know we're prideful, right? But God looked inside the man, the heart of the king of Assyria, and his heart whispers, What words that he would not speak out loud in the company of others. I will make myself like God Almighty. Let me ask you, what does the pride in your heart whisper? What Isaiah wants us to understand is that pride is not limited to evil dictators who whose injustice forces us to redraw our world maps. Pride is the problem of every man and every woman. Our pride is what's wrong with this world. Many people say, what does it matter? So I'm a little prideful. How can God really be upset with that? Why would God punish me for something so harmless as a little pride? But don't you see? 
Your pride is offensive because even the smallest, tiniest bit of pride tears at whatever is good in God's creation. Your tiny bit of pride keeps you from saying you're sorry to your child. Instead, you insist to her that he just caught me on a bad day. Listen, even the tiniest bit of pride makes it so that you prioritize your life over others. You see, it becomes impossible for you to love your neighbor as yourself when you love yourself but not your neighbor. Which makes the life and death of Jesus to be such a stark condemnation of our pride. You know that famous passage in Philippians 2? If you don't, just read it this week. Paul speaks of the divine humility of Jesus Christ. Jesus emptied himself of all the glories of heaven. He humbled himself. Though he was God, he did not think that equality with God was what? Something to be grasped. And picking up in verse 8, we read, and being found in human form. God became human. Talk about humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This says that God's Son came to live in such self-sacrificing humility that he died on the cross for sinners, for us. But sadly, like the king of Assyria, our hearts whisper, our hearts whisper, I will ascend into heaven. I will set my throne on high. But listen, Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for us reveals the whispering in his heart. I will descend from heaven. I will leave my throne for the cross. Paul says that our proper response to the humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus is to what? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord, not me, to the glory of the Father. Back to the Moabites. The Moabites were enemies of God's people, but they were invited to come to God for refuge. But they refused to bow before the throne of God and confess his name and glory above all else. Isaiah depicts the Moabites as being stupid for rejecting God's offer. And God will therefore then rightly bring the Moabites to justice. And of course he does, if you read human history. But how much more so those who in pride today reject the gracious offer of God through Jesus Christ, his son, Listen, people today don't reject God's offer because they don't want refuge, right? They reject the offer because it means they will need to bow a knee to someone other than themselves. Pride. Pride, pride. 
You must search your heart with diligence for evidence of pride and in humility turn to God. James 4.6 says it clearly. God opposes the proud, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Which means there's only two options for you. What are they? Either God opposes you or he graces you. There is no in-between. And God has the day to come, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when justice fully comes upon those God opposes, and grace comes to those who are humbled in faith before him. It took a while to build the case, but there it is. Point one, God opposes the proud. Now Isaiah will show us that our God reigns over all. Our next two points are going to go quickly. The big idea here in the second point is, is that when we say our God reigns over all, we're saying that God is sovereign over everything, like everything. Uh, in other words, he, he, he sits on his throne, and his throne is over all creation, all time, all space. God's reign, he reigns in unchallenged sovereignty over all. Now, Isaiah magnifies this in chapter 14, verses 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my hand, in my land, and on my mountain trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. He's talking about his own people. This is the purpose that I have purposed concerning the whole world, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? For his hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Beautiful poetry. The life of every human being who has ever lived, whether they believe in God or not, has been lived in God's hands. The massive and ruthless Assyrian Empire was in God's hands. Remember how earlier we saw that God um, said that Assyria was like an axe in his hand, remember? And how God swung the Assyrians uh, against his own godless, faithless people to, to cut them down so that only a faithful remnant remained. Remember that? It wasn't too many weeks ago. Now Assyria is, the one, is one of the nations that God will bring to justice. And Isaiah shows us that God has a plan and he has a purpose. In verse 24, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And his plans and purposes are not limited to just one evil nation 2,700 years ago. Verse 26, this is the purpose that I have purposed concerning the whole earth. <laughs> and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. The whole earth, all the nations, every decade. And we see God's sovereign control over time and history in all that God has purposed. It will and must come about. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? Answer is no one. The plans and purposes of earthly kings, are they not continually being turned back and annulled? People rise up and 
uh, in outrage, but not so the Lord God Almighty. And so here are the thoughts we need to entertain this morning. Either God is telling the truth or he's lying. God either has the whole world, the universe even, in the palm of his hand, and everything that happens in every second of every day is the outworking of his good divine plan, or the world spins on its own, out of control. There is no middle ground. Now, if you believe that God is telling the truth here, then you need to decide if you're going to swallow the whole truth or try to keep it at arm's length? What will it be? Will you delight that God has purposed even the worst moments of your life for his greater purposes? See, it's not our human tendency to assume that if some hurtful circumstance befall us, that surely God didn't allow it to happen. We wrongly believe God would never allow bad things to befall good people. Which begs the question, what makes you think you're so good? <laughs> there goes our pride again. One of the reasons I wasn't a Christian in my early 20s is what we call the problem of pain. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to answer it sufficiently. But the problem of pain uh, relates to the belief that suffering cannot exist if God is infinitely good and infinitely powerful. And since there is suffering everywhere, well, then God must not exist, right? You understand the argument? C.S. Lewis addresses it really well in his masterful book, The Problem of Pain. I think we got just one copy left on the, on the book table. Uh, I took Peter Christensen, uh, that book, last week, and he's been just devouring it. He loves it. Um, but let me just say, God is perfectly good, and all-powerful, and suffering exists everywhere in creation. And so we rightly ask, how is this possible? And understand this, God doesn't give us a rational argument. Think this through. My guess is that the answer in his mind cannot even begin to be processed in our tiny little human brains, right? Right? Are there not things that God has in his mind that we just can't understand? There has to be, right? And so God cannot give us a rational argument. We just wouldn't understand it. But instead, he gives us a persuasive person. He gives us his son. You see, if God's own sinless, innocent son, Jesus Christ, can experience the greatest suffering and injustice ever... And he still declares that his father is good and glorious. Then we have an answer. The justice that we deserve from God for the lives we have lived was placed upon the innocent lamb of God who takes away our sin. So God doesn't give you an intellectual answer. No. But because of the cross of Christ, we can know that our loving Heavenly Father is good and is all-powerful, and he himself has experienced sorrow and suffering. So somehow in God's mind, it's reconcilable. 
So we might not have all the answers, but we have more than a rational argument. We have the compassion and care of a perfectly good and powerful God who alone can bring good from our hardship. And so when you experience pain and sorrow and trials of, and hardship, listen, do not run from God, doubting his power or goodness. Run to your heavenly Father who knows your pain, for he alone is your refuge. Now, if this is true, then doesn't it make perfect sense that we should now look to God for everything? Because God opposes the proud, and because we are inherently prideful people, we must look to Christ who humbled himself and died for us. And because our Heavenly Father reigns over all, we are to entrust everything about our lives to him. We must delight that God has everything under his watchful eye, and he will bring about a perfect justice. To look to God means we put our trust in him. Try this. Try to picture yourself placing the entirety of who you are, the entirety of your life, fully into God's hands. Not just for one hour on a Sunday, but all of you into God's hands. See, we're wise to do so. For understand this, there is no security for us in this world apart from being in God's hands. Isaiah shows us what that looks like, what that day will be. Isaiah 17, verses 7 through 8. 17, 7 through 8. And this is really talking about something still yet to come. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look to what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. Asherah was the pagan goddess of the nations that were in the promised land before God's people landed there. Asherim were these poles with the goddess's image on them that the people bowed before and worshipped. God warned his people before they went into the land not to look to the foreign gods of the people around them, but to look to God alone. Not today, no one in America carves out Asherim poles to worship Asherah. But we do look to all kinds of other false gods to to deliver us earthly hopes, to bring about a security that we long for. As we said before, today we live in the already, not yet. And so we're so easily tempted, are we not, to to look at God's substitutes in our lives. But this promise here says there will be a day coming, Christian, when you will no longer even be able to do that. Doesn't that that bring you joy? It brings me joy. I so quickly look at my stock portfolio and say, am I going to be able to retire? I don't know. Yes, no, yes, no. (laughs) Right? Isaiah says, there's a day coming, Christian, when you no longer have to look 
to the, the, the powerful gods of this earth to provide you security or happiness or joy. So that should change how we live today in the already not yet. Isaiah speaks of that day in the future still when all of mankind will only look at his maker. There is a day to come when everything that is wrong with this universe will be fixed to perfection without the ability to ever be corrupted again. Scripture speaks of that day of the Lord which will come upon this earth in a, in a blinking of an eye. And then Jesus will return. He will come and he will restore this world and he will judge everyone on that day. Every careless word by every human being who has ever lived will be accounted for. Every sinful thought or deed or failure to do good that you know you should do, it will be perfectly judged. From Genghis Khan to Mother Teresa to Hitler to me and to you. All will stand before the perfect righteous judge. Billions will be rightly judged and sent to hell. We know this because Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But also, many will be saved by grace through faith in Christ and welcomed into eternal glory. Let me ask you do, you, do you look to Christ? Do you know that he has saved you for that day? Trust in him, look to him, and long for that day. On April 3rd, 2012, I almost died due to the, due to the negligence of another. A man who ran a construction business was... In a hurry to get home, he ignored a stop sign and ran into me with his huge Freightliner semi-truck. I was on my bicycle. I almost died. I've suffered much, much pain over two years, and I still deal with it physically. But as I laid there in the middle of Montauk Highway, my bike broken into two parts, I looked up into the cab, and in an instant, it wasn't from my flesh, it was by the Spirit of God, this thought entered my mind. Mark, you need to forgive this man right now. And I did. I forgave the man, but I also pursued justice by God's means as he allows. I called one of my seminary professors. I thought I knew the answer, and, but I wanted his biblical wisdom. He said, Mark, you're right to forgive this man, and you're also, you also have a right pursue justice on this earth. And he was right. I hired an attorney. We received a settlement. It was tiny. See, this man hid all of his assets, his business assets, equipment and everything in his wife's name. I came to figure out why. He owed $200,000 to the IRS. My attorney says, Mark, you're not going to get anything. Justice will not prevail here. After attorney's fees, I got $33,000. This might sound like a lot, but it didn't seem like justice at the time. As I processed it all, we were going through our first building campaign to buy this building, and I felt led by God to give all that to the campaign. In the end, listen, God took the sorrow and the pain that I suffered, and he turned it into good. 
Isaiah has shown us this morning that God has perfect justice for our unjust world. And so whatever happens, we must live with confidence now. In humility, we must rest in the truth that God has a day coming in which every harm that has ever come upon you will be perfectly judged. So it is important that we ultimately trust God with all the injustice in this world. Not that we don't seek to promote justice in this world. In fact, we must seek to promote justice for ourselves and for others in our community and in this world. But trusting God changes how we live now, right? Can you see that? When you entrust God with bringing perfect justice, it frees your mind from the hate and the anger and the bitterness that comes when justice must be in our hands. When you look to the cross and see how much mercy and grace God has given to you, it humbles you before God and before other people, even those who have hurt and harmed you. It turns you from being a fountain of bitterness in this world to being a fountain of grace. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, ask yourself, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to entrust to the justice of God on that day? Think of that person and then let the grace of God come over you and set you free from the vengeance so that you may live with joy as a fountain of God's grace in this world. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Uh, I'm thankful uh, as Reverend or Pastor Middlecoff that this world isn't in my hands, that the justice that needs to take place isn't in my hands. This causes us to praise you. Praise you for your sovereignty, for your love, for your perfection, for your perfect justice. And we thank you for Jesus that who took upon himself the justice that we deserve so that we can be set free to love others as you have loved us. And we praise and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.